Section three of Fires and Firefighters by John Kenlan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three The Evolution of Firefighting. It may be safely asserted that the fire department of ancient Rome was better organized and better equipped than the rough and ready volunteer services maintained by the great European cities during the Middle Ages. There had, in fact, been a period of retrogression, which was coincident with the dismemberment of the Roman Empire, when all art and science languished in the chaos that ensued. Needless to say, the problems affecting fire control were relegated to the background, and indeed the art of destroying towns received more consideration than that of their preservation. Thus it is that no records can be found of mechanical appliances being used at the conflagrations which demolished Constantinople and Vienna. Indeed, this retrograde movement had so far affected the whole subject that even in the Renaissance, when Europe teemed with fresh ideas and new thought, no other method of fighting fires existed than the primitive bucket of the pre-Roman period. By 1590, however, there were signs of an awakening interest, and in an account of a fire in England, the use of a monstrous syringe is related as the introduction of a novelty, although in reality it must have been practically a counterpart of the siphonarius, mention of which was made in the last chapter. In 1615 a hand-engine was made in Germany, but it was merely a pump without hose, the principle embodied being a rotary paddle-wheel, which, by being turned rapidly, forced the water out through an orifice. This again was not new, the idea having probably been derived from Greek sources. Even in 1666 the good citizens of London were without any mechanical appliances, and were practically helpless to stem that terrific conflagration, which devastated their city, and consumed 13,200 houses, covering an area of 436 acres, the ancient cathedral of St. Paul, and 36 other churches, the Royal Exchange, the Custom House, hospitals, and four prisons, in which, incidentally, several persons lost their lives. The value of the property destroyed amounted to nearly $60 million, and it undoubtedly served to impress upon the public mind the necessity of some proper system of fire prevention. Immediately afterwards the city was divided into four districts, each under the control of a special officer, possessed of authority to take charge in the event of a fire. It must be understood that at this time social and economic conditions made life comparatively simple. Gas and matches were unknown, thus eliminating those two fruitful sources of carelessness. Buildings were, as a rule, one story in height, and the floors, even in the dwellings of the wealthy, were flagged with stone. Hence the change was slow in coming, and was concomitant with the demand for increased security of persons and property. Business activity began to show itself in all parts of Western Europe in the fifteenth century, and towns destined to be the industrial centers of the modern world had their genesis. 
with their growth began afresh a full appreciation of fire risks and the necessity of fire control yet it was not until the eighteenth century that one richard newsham designed a hand engine of practical utility water was supplied to it by hand and was then pumped out through a hose thus forming the predecessor of the manual drafting its own water and thereby supplying pumps america had to learn her lesson in her own way from the atlantic to the pacific her colonists found the country covered with dense forests which were naturally utilized for building purposes and as a result as early as sixteen forty eight the first fire ordinance was adopted in new york forbidding the use of wooden chimneys and providing for the purchase of one hundred leather buckets hooks and ladders a body of volunteers was organized to patrol the streets at night and watch for outbreaks who from their persistent painstaking and sometimes rather indiscreet efforts were christened suggestively the prowlers their work was however appreciated and in sixteen seventy eight the town of boston organized the first regular fire company under municipal control and imported from england a species of hand pump only in eighteen o eight did a philadelphia firm put on the market riveted leather hose and soon afterwards an ingenious hose carriage of american invention was adopted and remains in use in a modified form to the present day england was the first country to manufacture rubber hose about eighteen twenty and its employment with certain improvements has become general the application of steam as a means of obtaining power was responsible for a revolution in fire apparatus as it was in all other lines of mechanical effort it has contributed in no small degree to the construction of effective portable machinery with which to fight fires and the benefits derived from its use have been almost incalculable obviously it is the endeavor of all firemen to check a fire in its early stage since generally speaking its commencement is small and progress comparatively slow it is no exaggeration to say that some of the great conflagrations which for hours and even days have baffled the combined efforts of huge fire departments with scores of determined firemen equipped with much powerful apparatus could have been extinguished in a few seconds by the cool-headed and well-directed work of one man armed with but a single pail of water had he arrived in time in other words if ready means of suppressing a fire in its infancy were at hand many serious outbreaks might be averted and hence it is that so much depends upon effective apparatus and the speed with which it is conveyed to the scene of the action for imagine what happened in the old days before the adoption of the steam fire engine first consider the bucket period a person discovering a fire would run to his nearest neighbor for help and then the alarm would be given from one house to another and immediately all would be confusion volunteers there would be in plenty armed with buckets or any other domestic utensil which could contain water forming a line they would pass the buckets from hand to hand sending them back by their women-folk to be refilled with such loss of time and feeble resistance it is small wonder if usually the flames continued their course practically unchecked 
and a building saved from complete ruin was considered as a remarkable achievement. Next came the period of the hand engine. Bells upon churches and other public buildings were now the means of spreading the dire tidings, and upon hearing their summons the voluntary firemen would hurry to their quarters and drag their engine in the direction of the first alarm. Then arose the question, where was the nearest water supply? And no doubt time was wasted through unsolicited advice. If, as was often the case, the supply proved to be at too great a distance from the outbreak for one engine to furnish an efficient stream, a second was stationed between the fire and the water. The ensuing contest between both parties of excited men as to which should occupy the place of honor nearer the fire, and the efforts of the vanquished to pump up more water than the engine in front could use, no doubt added to the gaiety of the community, and the mythological god of fire must have smiled, and perhaps murmured, What fools these mortals be! But this opera bouffe method of fire-fighting really served a useful purpose, inasmuch as the increasing seriousness of the fire-risk did not appeal, in the same degree, to the sense of humor of those who lost their property, with the result that the advent of a new factor in fire-control was welcomed by the influential of the population. George Braithwaite, an Englishman, first conceived a steam-fire-engine, which was completed in the year 1829, and was a portent of the great change to come, Skeptics there were, who scoffed at its superiority, and who jeeringly referred to it as the steam squirt or the kitchen stove. But it had come to stay, and in 1840 a New Yorker by the name Paul Hodges constructed a model of curious design, which, however, proved impracticable. The year 1845 was marked by the first of the great fires which heralded the era of new building construction in the United States, and which, therefore, deserves more than passing mention. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was the scene of the disaster, which originated from the simplest act of carelessness. On washing day, in the early part of April, a housewife made a small fire upon which to boil water in the backyard of her home. A high wind was blowing, and sparks from her miniature bonfire were carried to a neighboring building, which quickly ignited. With incredible rapidity the flames spread from house to house, and despite the desperate efforts of volunteer and amateur firemen, the destruction ceased only when no material was left for the fire to feed upon, in a territory fifty-six acres in extent. The financial loss was five million dollars, an enormous one for those days, and two thousand families wandered homeless over the charred remains of what had been their dwellings. This is one of those instances when prompt and timely action would have probably saved the situation, but the antiquated methods employed, coupled with the delay inseparable from the summoning of volunteers, was just sufficient to transform what might have been a backyard blaze into a conflagration of the first magnitude. And so it always will be in fire control. Time is an ally of the utmost value, which in its turn demands the maximum of celerity on the part of all concerned. Prominence is given to this episode, 
since some such reminder was needed in america as elsewhere to stir up its citizens to a realization of what fire could accomplish even from the smallest and most trifling beginnings untold romance lies in the history of the great forest fires of america which even today rage to a large extent uncontrolled but which educated the early settlers to a vivid realization of their perils thus in the prosperous colony of new brunswick there is chronicled a conflagration which in its destructive horror has left an indelible mark upon the population as well as upon the land itself along the banks of the river miramichi there were scattered in eighteen twenty five prosperous settlements of fishermen and farmers while through the forest which extended for hundreds of miles to the north and south roamed hunters and trappers of nomadic habits in search of a livelihood to them nature appeared so bountiful that no thought of any enemy common alike to both entered their contented minds the summer had been a dry one and the autumn had brought but little rain till the pine needles and leaves crackled under the weight of a passing step and a careless lumberman was to transform this haven of quiet into a holocaust of ruin having finished his evening pipe he knocked it out against a tree stump and turned in little recking of the consequences he awoke to find the forest ablaze about him and although fearfully burned managed to make his way to the nearest camp where there was no need to tell his story for east and west north and south the glow of an unnatural day was upon them from the waters of the miramichi to the shores of bay chaleur there was one roaring hurricane of flame and no human means wherewith to stay it dawn followed dawn bringing no relief till the heart of a great province was transformed from a richly wooded country into a lonely and desolate waste so much had been accomplished by human carelessness though it is ever thus that the world has learned its lesson no less than two hundred persons either perished in the flames or were drowned in the river vainly trying to find safety in its cooling waters over a thousand horses and cattle were swept to their doom and six thousand square miles of forest disappeared as completely from the face of the earth as though they had never been in some places the destruction of vegetation was so thorough that even to this day nothing can grow there but stunted shrubbery and coarse grass a constant reminder of this tragedy with such examples of the terrific power of fire was it surprising that the new world hailed the invention of the steam engine with enthusiasm as a possible panacea for its sufferings even to the amateur mechanic the principles governing the construction and working of the steam fire engine are simple and easy of understanding in the earliest examples an upright boiler with a spacious firebox at its base was set between the rear wheels of an ordinary carriage body and surmounted by a short smokestack bolted to the front of the boiler were two steam cylinders above them being placed the pump itself so that the piston rod of the engine served as the rod of the pump steam drove the pistons up and down in the engine drawing water through a large suction hose on one side and forcing it out on the other through a smaller hose 
from the pumps the water was forced to an air chamber forming a cushion and serving to equalize the pressure thus giving an unvarying discharge the principle of these pumps was therefore very much akin to that of the hand engine but with enormously increased power as this was long prior to the introduction of the water tube boiler steam had to be generated in the old way by which the heat given off by combustion is conveyed by tubes through the boiler the water supply of the boiler was obtained from a small pipe connected to or near the suction chamber and pumps on the average the diameter of the cylinders in the various sizes of engines ranged from six and one-half to ten inches while the stroke as a rule measured eight inches these rough particulars will give the reader some idea of the chrysalis from which the modern fire engine has emerged since fires cannot be fought without water some account of the problem connected with its supply deserves attention here again may be observed the retrograde movement since in roman times it was not uncommon to find aqueducts forty miles in length which from their situation were enabled to deliver to the city in accordance with the laws of gravity a sufficient quantity of water at a moderate pressure naturally this was of great advantage in fire-fighting and from historical records it is clear that the most was made of it but in europe of the middle ages these lessons had been forgotten and the practice had fallen into desuetude rivers wells and ponds were considered adequate for the needs of the population and it is curious to meditate that the intellectual wealth of that time expended itself solely upon art and the most profound metaphysics to the exclusion of more mundane though probably more useful considerations regarding public health and safety yet even in the middle of the last century it was by no means uncommon to find large towns dependent upon a water supply operated by private companies and conveyed by means of open mains through the streets in eighteen fifteen philadelphia introduced a complete system of underground pipes constantly supplied with water by a central pumping station this plan proved a success and has since been gradually adopted even by many of the smallest towns in america this system however did not at its initiation take into consideration the fire department and the city of new york probably had the first water service to which hydrants were connected for that particular purpose by degrees has been evolved from this mode of supply that most valuable adjunct of modern fire-fighting the high-pressure system which even now has not been extended to its limit of usefulness and which is lacking in cities where it should most certainly be installed a detailed description of its advantages is given in a separate chapter naturally an outbreak of fire being invariably attended with some danger to human life those far-sighted romans cast about for the most simple yet effective means of coping with the situation two pieces of their apparatus were specially designed for this purpose and have survived in a modified form until the present day firstly mention must be made of the roman ladder the great advantage of this apparatus lies in its simplicity in its constructive details it has changed practically not a whit since the days of nero 
and it is as useful in wide thoroughfares as in narrow courts, while its portability is such that one man can carry the entire equipment. It consists of a series of short ladders from six to nine feet in length, the lower part of each being slightly broader than the top. By means of a slot, the sections can be fitted together, all being interchangeable except that designed for the bottom, which has its sides somewhat more outspread in order to provide a firmer hold upon the ground. The method of erection is simple and ingenious. The lowest section is first placed against the wall to be scaled at a considerable angle. The fireman then ascends it with a section on his shoulder, and armed with a rope, a hook belted to his waist, and a pulley. When he reaches a certain rung, which in modern practice is painted scarlet, he puts his leg through the ladder, his foot against the wall, and hooking himself on in order to leave his hands free, pushes the ladder away from the wall, and fits the section he has carried on top of the section upon which he is standing. He then hauls up another section and repeats the same maneuver. At the Colosseum in Rome, for exhibition purposes, these ladders have been joined up together till they reached a total length of 164 feet. This apparatus, it may be remarked, is in regular use in many of the Italian fire departments today. The second noteworthy appliance of Roman times, which has endured through all these centuries, and which, in the writer's humble opinion, modern invention has not improved, is the jumping pillow. This was nothing more nor less than a large mattress, some eight feet square, stuffed with hair or feathers, and designed to break the fall of any one jumping from a height. Nowadays the practice is to use a net made of heavy rope attached to springs to afford additional resiliency. The chances of any one jumping from a height of more than three stories must always be intensely hazardous. But all things considered, there appears to be a balance in favor of landing on the pillow. During that most distressing fire at the Ash Building in New York, when a number of lives were lost, several young women attempted to jump to safety, were caught in the net, and found death. The impetus their bodies gathered while falling was so terrific that the shock of the impact killed them in every case. Hence it will be seen that the firefighting world is still awaiting the genius of the inventor who will be able to devise some other means of catching unfortunates who are compelled by dire necessity to jump to their doom. This brief resume will have been sufficient to demonstrate the fact that the inclusion of firefighting amongst the scientific problems of the day, and as one worthy of serious consideration, dates from modern times and hence the many improvements which have been introduced into its practice, are all of such recent origin that even now they are only just emerging from an embryonic stage. It is probable that the next century will witness advances along all lines of such immense consequence that present apparatus will be totally outclassed, and will be relegated to the glass cases and dusty environment of museums, where the curious of future generations will gaze with interest, tinged possibly with amusement, at the appliances used to fight the flames by their forefathers. So far, the use of chemistry as an ally of water in subduing fires is only in its infancy. 
and though prophecy is admittedly unsatisfactory, and more often than not misleading, it may be hazarded that the cumbersome steam-fire pump will in due course disappear from the sphere of active operations, and that the outbreaks of the future will be dealt with swiftly and easily by a combination of high-pressure streams coupled with chemical forces as yet inoperative. It has taken many centuries to evolve the fire departments of the present, but as so often happens, now that a scientific advance has at last been made, that advance will continue with increasing rapidity, until fire, as was always intended, shall be the servant and not the scourge of man. End of section three. Recording by Maria Casper.